Welcome in, everybody. It's good to see you guys here tonight on a beautiful, wonderful, hot, and celebratory night. We get to be here and worship uh, the King together. So I want to introduce myself first for those of you guys who don't know who I am. My name is Jared Corzine. I'm the pastor of discipleship here at Matthias's Lot. And uh, I have been uh, blessed to be on staff here for uh, close to 60 years now. It's been a, an amazing blessing, man. It's a journey in, uh, in walking alongside, in and with the church uh, that we have here as we seek to follow Jesus together. And so uh, tonight uh, we have a special opportunity. Uh, Pastor Mark finished the book of Colossians last week. And before he begins in Philippians next week, uh, we get to take a side journey tonight. And it's a journey that is um, uh, hopefully familiar in some ways for those of you who've uh, been in, in the Bible for a while. And, and if not, then I hope that you see this man fresh in a new invitation into discipleship uh, for the first time. So um, I'm going to start by reading this in Matthew 28, uh, just to get right to it. Matthew 28, it says this, Now therefore the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And this is where we picked up last week. This is where Pastor Mark left us off at the end of Colossians. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Amazing truth, an amazing reality that Jesus sent his disciples, his own disciples who would become apostles, out on mission. So he gave them a mission, he gave them a calling to make disciples of all nations. Um, he didn't leave them alone, which was the good news of last week, that in the midst of all this, we get to be on mission together. And at the same time, even if all of the rest of us fall away, we have the Lord Jesus Christ with us. He will never leave us or forsake us. And so as we journey into this, I want to begin by um, defining uh, something. This uh, next slide, Austin, if you can, is, is what discipleship, in my own words, is. It's needing and following Jesus and teaching others to do the same. So you hear people talk about following Jesus. Uh, following Jesus, not, not, following a, uh, not following a church, not following a, a different pastor or a priest, not following any other prophets or religious figures, not following any other, even the best of theological systems as they may be, not following any of that, but being Jesus' people, following Christ where he calls you, where he leads you. Uh, it's an amazing calling. It's an amazing task. We believe at this church, along with many other churches, that God has not given us this call in just a big, general, vague sense, not just to make disciples by preaching the word corporately, not just to make disciples in some of the bigger ways, though we certainly believe in that. We, we believe that it's our calling as the church to equip every man and woman in Christ to be raised up to make disciples, to walk along another brother and sister, younger in the faith, to journey with them as together you follow Christ, not pointing to yourself, but pointing ever so often to Jesus, to his finished work, and who he is in your life as well. So tonight, before we get into this very special passage in Mark's gospel, I want to begin by asking a question. When you walked in here tonight, uh, what did you think you need? Besides air conditioning, what did you think you need? Yeah, some amens on that. 
What did you think you needed coming into tonight? If you had uh, a sentence and it went something like this, if I just had blank, everything would be perfect. Everything would make sense. Everything would be worthwhile. Everything, uh, I would find significance and wholeness. If I just had blank, what would you have said earlier? What would you have said waking up? What would you have said walking in here? Uh, I had a couple ideas that I put up. Uh, the first one is this. Money. Uh, no, no doubt this man has a lot of money. No doubt he's going to have to bathe after this because money is extremely dirty uh, as a physical item, but he has money. Money certainly would be on some of your radars tonight. Another one is this. Uh, a, a donut. You know, I'll say food generally. I'm not going to lie, after like, starting to put this together on Monday, I went and got a donut because it just looked pretty good. And uh, Okay, so food, food in general will be another. That's kind, of, that's kind of like an aha. You know, of course, this actually makes sense because we need food to survive, but um, you'll see where I'm getting that as we go on. The next one is this. Coffee. Uh, so, or we'd say caffeine in general, but this particular coffee cup has... Uh, they spilled the bag around it for some reason. It's supposed to make it better, I guess, to spill coffee beans all around it. But some of you guys would say, man, I need my, my cup of coffee, my Diet Coke, my iced whatever it is, uh, or I can't get through the day. Uh, next slide. What, what's the next one here? We've got, uh, you guys can't tell what this is at first. It's actually your cell phone. So everybody at this table, you've been a part of this sometimes, where you look up, if, if, if everybody around you is glued to your phone, you recognize that, man, we're all together, but somehow we're all looking down at our at our phone. Some of you guys would say your cell phone. If, if this thing, we call it going to sleep in our house because frankly we don't want to have the conversation about death because of a cell phone with our young kids. So you, you, if your phone like goes to sleep, right, then uh, life as you know it would end. What about this next one? Uh, a job. Uh, she seems pretty successful, a sports fan. She's smiling on the phone, closing a deal. Some of you guys are coming in here uh, without a job and this, you're literally telling yourself, if I could only have the job, everything would be perfect. Everything would be great. Some of you guys are in that job, but you always, like every job that you get in, your eyes are always up the ladder. So even when you step foot into the next job, your eyes will be on the higher job. If only I had that better job. Some of you guys have that job, whatever that job is, and it still isn't enough. Next is, is this, uh, the dream home. Uh, I put this in there. This is kind of, I mean, in some ways, it could be a list of my own personal favorite things. Uh, this is probably what we would call our dream home-ish in our house. Uh, a lot of features that we would like about that. If we only had a different house, man, everything would be perfect. Or you're in that season where you're trying to sell your house, and you think, man, if we only find the best house, it'll, it'll make or break our whole life from here on out, you know. Uh, last one, I think, that we've got one more here. Now, I was really tempted to put up a picture of my family right here. But I thought it would be presumptuous because some of you guys don't get my humor. So uh, we'll just say this family is the perfect family. And not that I think I have the perfect family, by the way. But some of you guys don't want the mustache. Some of you do. But you want that. You want the, you, you're, you're telling yourself, if I just had the spouse, if I just had the relationship. Some of you guys are married and you're telling yourself, if I just had the kids. We have couples uh, with as many young families in our church. We perpetually have couples who are wrestling and struggling with things like infertility. And this thought comes up, if we just had, it's tempting to believe, if we just had the kid or the kids, everything would be uh, satisfied. Friends, I just want to throw something your way. Anything you need, you can take that picture down, by the way. 
feel like he's looking at me. Um, I'll say this, though. Anything you need, ultimately, in that ultimate place, will eventually consume you. Anything you need that is in the ultimate, the highest, the last resort, I can do without everything else, but man, if I have to do without that one thing, life is over. Anything that is in that place will consume you for good or for bad. Now, the goal of the Christian life is to continually, every single morning, take the other things off of your mantle and put Jesus back up there, to put him back up in that ultimate place. But the reality is, is like a lot of these things that, that we just showed up here, it's not very acceptable to need something in our culture, to be dependent upon something to be lost without something. It's sure moderation in something is okay, but it's not very appealing to be somebody who is desperately in need of something. But tonight, this is precisely what Jesus is inviting his disciples and you and me tonight to be a part of, this journey of discipleship. And not just discipleship individually, but discipleship together as with one another, with disciplers, with disciples, that we would follow Christ in places where we are ever only more and more aware of our need of Jesus. And at the same time, the more we're aware of our need, the, the, at the same time we're satisfied in those places. So let me pray, and then we're going to get into two amazing, beautiful stories tonight. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your guidance of, of us, and we thank you for your patience for us. We pray tonight, Father, that you would guide us into truth, especially in these two amazing stories that show us that at the end of the day, Jesus is unmatched. Uh, he is our treasure. He is our uh, leader, the one we follow. He is our sacrifice. He has everything that we need him to be and so much more. Our imaginations can't keep up with who Jesus even is on our best day. So we pray tonight that you would give us hope and give us a real, desperate, honest, good, genuine need of Jesus. Amen. So if you could, turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 6. Matthias Light Church hasn't preached through a gospel in quite a long time, so let me catch you up on kind of where we're at. We preach the gospel every week, but a gospel is a, a different story altogether. So in Mark's gospel, uh, you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Mark's gospel is particularly focused on discipleship. Not that the other gospels aren't, but Mark, Mark shows this in such a way that is really amazing, especially as he tracks through the life and the journey of Peter himself, the, the lead apostle. Uh, so in Mark 6, we've got a couple things that have happened leading up to this. In the earlier chapters, uh, Jesus has been recognized for who he is. He's done amazing things. Uh, he's, he's already sent out earlier in this chapter, at the beginning of this chapter, the 12 disciples to go out and do some pretty supernaturally amazing things. They've healed the sick. They've uh, done some supernatural stuff with spirits and all that. It's been absolutely crazy. And that's where we pick up tonight. So in Mark chapter 6, beginning with verse 30, Here's where it starts. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. Verse 32, so, uh, and they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. A desolate place in scripture or a desert place. There's always a symbol, there's always a key that you're going to look for an opportunity for faith to be tested, for this opportunity to be stretched, to be pushed, to, to come to an, an acknowledgement of who do I believe God is in this particular moment, in this particular desolate place. In verse 33, now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns. 
You have to imagine this. It's, it's, it's been already apparent that people recognize Jesus. He's done some things that has gained him celebrity and notoriety in Galilee and the region where they're in. But now the disciples have gone out themselves and have come out, uh, go out, uh, gone out two by two apart from Jesus and have come back together. And they've come back astonished at the things that they were able to do. And then now not only are people recognizing Jesus, but as they're on the boat, people are recognizing them from town to town, the disciples themselves. They're already beginning to, be on, to, to become celebrities themselves, to be known, to be recognized, to, to begin to have success in their own eyes. So it says people that were running there on foot uh, from all the towns, and they got there ahead of them. They met there at the pass where the disciples were going with Jesus. In verse 34, when he went ashore and saw a great crowd... Remember, they're going to a place to find rest. They saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Now, I'll say this. There's like 10 different layers of other amazing things happening in this uh, story, both these stories tonight. But I will promise you this. Just to save myself time and to get it off my chest, I firmly believe that uh, Mark is retelling the story of Jesus as it happens tonight. Jesus is embodying himself perfectly what it means to be the good shepherd of Psalm 23. As you look throughout this, you go back in your own time and read and, and, and look at this side by side. He looked on this crowd as they were um, like sheep without a shepherd. He wasn't annoyed with them. He had compassion on them. The word is only used in the Gospels to talk specifically about what Jesus had. And it's not just pity. It's, it's, it's some, form of, uh, some form of pity and a softness of heart that leads to action. They're actually doing something with that pity that he has for them. It says, and he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place, and now the hour is late. Send them away to go out into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. You got to imagine their hearts in this moment. You know, you, you said we we're going to go to a desolate place. Come on, Jesus. Like, we're, we're kind of big deals now. We've done some pretty amazing things. We're tired, right? This crowd was awesome for a little while, but it's late. They got to go home. Send them home to go buy something to eat for themselves. In verse 37, but he answered them, you give them something to eat. It's an unbelievable task. It's an impossible task. I think Jesus is beginning to show his disciples what it looks like to embody um, living a life of ministry that they're going to live long after he's gone. A disciple looks like his teacher, looks like his discipler is what we called it in this church. A disciple looks like their discipler, that um, they're going to embody what it means to follow Jesus uh, in ways that are, that are relevant to their own life, that are relatable uh, from each other's lives. And so Jesus uh, himself has compassion on this crowd, and so he is guiding the disciples in this moment. He says, you give them something to eat. Surely they would have been in over their head. I mean, you have to imagine this. We're going to get into the exact numbers here in a little bit, but thousands of people who show up into this town, and it's late, no electricity, public lighting. It's crazy, chaos. And Jesus says, you feed them. How many of you feel in over your head tonight because of where God has you right now? For the best of situations, for the worst of situations. You may be in over your head because you don't know what to do with so much good stuff. You might be in over your head because a situation that you're dealing with, you see no way out. Maybe a tangible situation related to finances or housing or family or things like that. Maybe sickness. How many of you are in over your head tonight and having to come to reality to the grips that 
man, this is absolutely an impossible situation. The end of the tunnel is so far away that I can't even begin to see it. Jesus knows, I believe, exactly what he's doing right here. He knows exactly what he's doing. He's guiding them to a place where they're going to realize that they absolutely do not have enough of what it takes to get this done, that he is the one who's needed. But we keep going in verse 37. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? 200 denarii would be about 200 days worth of wages. Just a a little glimpse back into their times. There wasn't like a Bank of Jerusalem ATM around every corner, okay? If they had money with them, they had to carry it with them. They had to bring it with them. None of them for sure would have had 200 days worth of wages on them. And if they had it, they probably would have been struggling to say, should we blow eight months worth of wages so that we can feed this one crowd? You sense their irony coming in. Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them in verse 38, how many loaves do you have? He's serious. He doesn't even give in to the irony. How many loaves do you have? Go and see. Go check. Go see. Take a precise account of what you have in there before I am about to do what I'm going to do. And when they found out, they said five and two fish. I bet they were discouraged. They wish they were more. They probably wish they had like 5,200. That would be a lot better. In verse 39, then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. Verse 40, so they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. You can begin to see how big the crowd is. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven. I believe in full dependence upon his father. And I can't even begin to fathom what, I mean, put yourself there. What would this have looked like if you're watching Jesus? What would the actual event have looked like? He looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. It's almost verbatim. Actually, it is verbatim in the verbs of of how Mark describes Jesus giving the Lord's Supper later in this gospel. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. Jesus never gives you anything that doesn't satisfy you. Jesus doesn't give anything that leaves you hanging, that leaves you empty-handed. What he gives is always enough. Matter of fact, what he gives is always more than enough. If we don't see that, then we have further to go with him still to figure that out. In verse 43, and they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. There's more left over. He always gives you more than you ask for. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. Other gospels will say that this was 5,000 men, not counting women and children. Now, the average village in their day, in this time, would have been about two to 3,000 people around the Sea of Galilee. So every village they come upon is not nearly as big as this. So they come upon this encounter, and just counting the men, there's probably two villages worth of people here. But, but no amount, no, no group, no need is too big for Jesus. And he's showing that, I believe, to his disciples tonight, who came in here tonight needing to be reminded that Jesus alone is the miracle worker, the need satisfier, and not you. You guys all play in different roles and responsibilities in your life. Me too. Different things that are weighing on you at different times, burdens that you're carrying, maybe for other people. And you're carrying these in such a way that you are uh, getting weighed down more and more and more. It's only a matter of time just before you fall over. Let me give you permission tonight to take a deep breath and to exhale and to come back to the reality 
that it only ever was Jesus who can do these miracles. And matter of fact, the miracles in your life, he's the only one that can fully provide what is needed. He's, he's the one, uh, apart from everything that we have in us, even in our best days, with our best time, talent, gifts, resources, money, you name it, even with the most of what we have, it's nothing in comparison to what Jesus can do. He himself is the miracle worker. So uh, we need to look at the Sea of Galilee for a moment because we're going to keep going into the next story. So Austin, if you can put the first picture up here, this body of water is the Sea of Galilee. Uh, I think better called Lake Galilee sometimes because it's not very big. Uh, if you go to the Lake of the Ozarks or something over the summer, this is like a, a small fraction of the size of what that is. But you have the Sea of Galilee and all these regions up here in Galilee, this is where Jesus was from. You see Nazareth on the left. This is where he grew up. These are the towns where he performed most of his earthly ministry, his early earthly ministry where he did many signs, healings, miracles, things like that. If you can go to the next page, uh, next uh, slide, this is a satellite map photo that actually shows uh, where it's most likely that we're journeying through tonight in these passages, the top dot there, uh, which is unfortunately too small to read, but it's called Bethsaida. And on the left here on the western shore is Gennesaret. It's where they're going to go after these stories tonight. Look at the next slide if you can, Austin. This is showing the way the sea is laid out. This sea, the Sea of Galilee, is... For a freshwater lake is the, is the most low elevation lake on the planet. It's nearly 700 feet below sea level. And as a matter of fact, it's only, this, it's, it's only surpassed in its, its, um, in its depth below sea level by the Dead Sea itself, which is also in Israel. So what you have here, you can imagine this, you have this lake that sits so unbelievably low, and then you have these surrounding hills and mountainsides all around it. Now, it's... It's definitely a sea where it, it, it's prone to a tremendous amount of uh, wind and, and a lot of, uh, it, like in a moment's notice, a lot of gale and a lot of swells can roll up real quick. But at the same time, it's, it's also ideal as a place uh, to address a lot of people. Because you can imagine the acoustics coming from the bottom up or being able to hear in this big bowl vacuum. Jesus gave the Sermon on the Mount along one of these mountains along the Sea of Galilee himself. One more picture we have up here. If you're sitting on the shore looking out in the Sea of Galilee, uh, right now that's relatively calm from what I understand. But you have the Sea of Galilee, which is going to take center stage as far as the backdrop, the, the arena where this is going to take place in. So Mark picks up in verse 45. He says, immediately he made his disciples get into the boat. You've got to put yourself in, in, in the minds of the disciples. Jesus, come on, man. We, you sent us out. We did this two-by-two two thing. We did amazing miracles in your name. People even recognize us now. Man, and then we wanted you to get them away, but then you wanted us to feed them, so we, we watched you do this amazing thing. You fed these thousands of people. And then after all that, then Jesus says, it's time to get into the boat. Well, where are we going? Well, he, he didn't say that. He just says, it's time to get into the boat. It says, and, and go before him, before Jesus to the other side, to Bethsaida, where he dismissed the crowd. Verse 46, and after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. Jesus, I think, completely redefines rest throughout his whole earthly ministry. He goes to seek rest with these disciples, and he finds sheep without a shepherd that he shows compassion to. And then in the moments where sleep would be probably about the most necessary thing, he goes up on the mountain to pray to his father. In verse 47, when Evening came, the boat was out to sea, and he, Jesus, was alone on the land. And he saw 
that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against him. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. Let's just step back and acknowledge really quick that sometimes the Bible makes claims that are literally impossible, apart from the power of God. 5,000 people being fed, loaves and fishes, impossible with five loaves and two fish apart from God's power. A man walking on water, impossible apart from God's power. But I want to sit in this for just a second. This to me is the, is the most beautiful picture to me personally of both these two stories. You have Jesus sending out his disciples around evening. The Romans kept time by four watches of the night. The first watch was 6 to 9 p.m. Second watch was 9 p.m. to midnight. Third watch was midnight to 3 a.m. Fourth watch was 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. So after sending them out in the evening, let's say 9 o'clock at the latest, Jesus is up on the mountain praying for six hours and seeing them in the evening have struggle against the wind and against the waves. You have to imagine this, getting the perspective. Jesus stays in prayer and in watchfulness over his disciples for at least six hours while they're struggling in the water. You have to put yourself inside the boat. I mean, what would be going on, you know? As the waves kept going, bear in mind that, that a fair number of these disciples were fishermen by trade. Jesus went and recruited uh, Peter and Andrew and James and John themselves while fishing at the Sea of Galilee. They would have been veterans. They would have known what they're doing. But at, at some amazing, tremendous weather, as they're battling this all night, I can imagine Jesus praying in devotion to God and out of the corner of his ear, as they go by in a faint distance, hearing Peter argue with James. Or John trying to tell Peter to let go of the oar and let somebody else try it, you know. We're trying to hear Andrew reason with them and say, brothers, if we just have six sit on this side and six sit on this side, it would be better. Over time, as hours pass on, as they are lacking sleep more and more, say it's one, two o'clock in the morning, I can imagine one of them saying something like, where is Jesus anyway? Come on, he sent us out here on the boat. He did, we saw him do this thing, whatever, whatever just happened with the loaves and fishes. Where is that guy? Where's that guy when you need him now? And all the while, I can imagine Jesus kneeling down in prayer hour after hour after hour. And then when he knew it was time, he went and he walked on water and it was amazing. Who feels like you're in the boat right now? The different circumstances in all of our lives. Things that are, that are coming at you directly, right? Or sometimes like, like a, a wave that comes out of nowhere and surprises you. Something that just, you just got hit with something unbelievable that you didn't foresee coming. You're, you're, you've been paddling for hours, but then you look up and you're still about equally as far away from the edge as you were from where you left, right? I'm getting nowhere, right? So many things that are all going on in our lives. And, and how tempting is it to look back on the shore and think, man, I wish I could be like some guys who were back there. I wish I could be like people still on the shore. It'd be great if we could follow Jesus but not have to need him. I mean, literally, everything I have in this situation is impossible. There's nothing within me that can fully bring this to resolution. There's nothing that can solve this. I wish I was like those guys. I wish that I could be like Jesus but not in circumstances that required me to need him to be Jesus. 
Jesus is with you. Going back to Matthew 28, I am with you always to the end of the age. But I think when he says that, I want to keep in mind that, that to some of you, to me, my, my default is to think that Jesus is inviting me to be with him. But that somehow I'm still a nuisance as I like pull at his coat. Jesus, I know you said that you're with me, but I really need you right now. I know that you saw me walking really strong for a while there, but I really need you right now. And whenever did we begin to disconnect the idea that following Jesus and being totally dependent upon Jesus and all the nasty stuff by our culture's eyes that come with that, when did we ever separate that? When did we ever start believing that to need Jesus was actually immature? The reality is, my friends, is that the more we need Jesus, the more we recognize that our circumstances demand something far greater than us, the more we recognize that we keep falling, but we are, I'm, I'm going to keep fighting this battle, but I fall so much, the more we recognize that we are insufficient apart from Jesus Christ, friends, that's the place of maturity. That's the place of Christian growth. That's the place of discipleship, of true discipleship. And in Mark's gospel, I believe Mark is, is guiding this story where he's showing Jesus to reveal himself to his disciples in such a way that he's trying to get them to wrestle with two questions. Who do you believe yourself to be and who do you believe God to be? And that comes to a head in Mark chapter 8 when he says, but who do you say that I am? Peter says, you're the Christ. Mark's telling a story where even Peter himself is having to, having to wrestle with the fact that, that it's a mature place to realize that I need everything that Jesus is to die for me. It's an amazing thing. The story continues in verse 48, and he meant to pass by them, which is kind of weird. Did he mean to pass by them and they caught him off guard? I mean, what happens here? I think it means a couple things. I think it could mean a few things. The way I take is that, now the preposition can mean by or before. You, you could say it this way. I'll word it this way. He intended to pass before them. He intended to make himself known. I think he actually wasn't trying to like walk on the water around them so they didn't see him. Remember, this is nighttime. In order to pass before them, he would have to get really close before they could see him. He intended... Uh, he meant to pass by them, verse 49. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out. For they all saw him and were terrified. The situation, an impossible situation where food is multiplied for thousands of people. An impossible situation where Jesus seems intentionally to lead his disciples to a place where they will surely face difficulty that will draw them upon reliance upon who he is, this intentional way that he makes his disciples, that he exposes them to situations that draw out their need of Jesus. is isn't just Jesus' MO. It's not just his way of doing things. We see this in Acts 17. Uh, Acts 17, verses 10 through 15 says, the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them believed, therefore, but with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. Amen, women. Verse 13. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, 
They came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowd. They created a mob. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to, come to him, as soon as possible, they departed. So you have to, you have to back this up. Timothy was just uh, recruited by Paul to be his disciple a chapter before this. Pretty young man, early teenage years. Paul recruits him, Paul the church planner, Paul the missionary. Recruiting Timothy, I believe, because he sees the exact same gifts and strengths in him. He's found a, a protege. He's found somebody to raise up underneath him to continue being a part of this gospel missional work. Paul has no problem with, with giving his okay that Timothy should stay along with Silas. He doesn't say, guys, I really think Timothy should go with me because I don't know if you've recognized this. There's a very angry mob going on here in Berea. This is not the best place for a 14-year-old, right? I told his mom that I would have him back next fall. I mean, come on, we, we said that this thing was, was, was going to be okay, was going to be safe. Paul, just like Jesus, seizes opportunities to prioritize the growth of their disciples over their safety. I don't think that he means harm for Timothy right here. I don't think Jesus certainly means harm for the disciples in the boat. Jesus, by the way, is fully in control the whole time. But they're not afraid to let them go to difficult places to learn that they needed uh, Jesus. Let me put up this picture. Uh, this is no joke. I got this picture today, this morning on my phone. And uh, this is our oldest son, Reed. We have a pretty young family. He's three years old. And this is him riding a big boy bike for the first time today. I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm sitting here. Yes, yes, we should climb. Yeah, all over the He's so focused. You know, he takes it so seriously. Um, it's awesome. Now, as I'm, as I'm looking at the picture, I recognize that this is amazing, and there's nobody behind him. <laughs> this is awesome. Thank you for getting the picture for me, Mommy. This is awesome, you know. Um, if we want to learn how to ride the bike, you have to get on the bike. You have to take the risk of falling off the bike here and there. You have to risk bumps and bruises and scrapes. You have to risk the process of what it's going to be like for you to go through to train yourself up to be ready when it's the right time. While we're talking about kids, I do, I do just want to throw this in. I have heard this over time because I've, you know, for almost six years now, I've coached discipleship in our church, uh, believers discipling and mentoring one another, walking with one another in life. And in this call to do this, I've, I've uh, had people say at times, I'm not discipling anybody outside my family because I'm discipling my kids right now. Now, I'll say this. Number one, it's an amazing thing. Praise God that you're discipling your kids. But number two, God said be fruitful and multiply in the very beginning of the story, like the very beginning of the story for mankind. And if there wasn't anything else left to be said, then in Matthew 28, wouldn't Jesus have said something like, all authority has been given to me, therefore go on, keep being fruitful and multiplying. Go disciple your family, you know. Now, I think he's assuming that. I mean, we're, we're called to disciple our sons and our daughters together. But at the same time, um, there's a tremendous opportunity for me to walk alongside other men, to share my experiences as a husband, as a father, not just as another Starbucks, like, coffee date time, right? I mean, some of you guys hear, like, you know, discipleship, and you're, you've already gotten itchy because you're thinking, I don't have time for another thing. 
But this is, this is a process of involving somebody, inviting somebody to live life with you. It's, it's, it's not a separate day thing. It's involving somebody into what you're already doing as you follow Christ. To see what it looks like to be married and follow Christ. To see what it looks like to have a certain kind of job and follow Christ. To see what it looks like to raise your kids and follow Christ. And by the way, you mess up at everything. Isn't that, isn't that the truth? I mean, you mess up at everything, or it's just me, maybe. You mess up all along the way, but you grow through the bumps and the bruises. As we get back to our story, with just a few verses left, verse 50 says, but immediately he spoke to them and said, take heart. This is Jesus getting up to the boat. Take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. It is I. This is the exact repetition of the Greek translation of the Old Testament in Exodus 3, where God reveals his name to Moses, which is I am. Jesus is saying, take heart, I am. Do not be afraid. What do you need to hear that right now? What situation of, of, of your life? Take heart, God is with you. Do not be afraid. Take heart, God is bigger, Jesus is bigger than the waves around you. Do not be afraid. Jesus doesn't say, think about the ways that we would like reason this out. Think about the way our reasonable minds work in our very put together, well done compartment society. Jesus doesn't say, take heart guys. I read the weather report this morning and it's gonna stop raining in an hour. Or take heart guys, the boat is pretty big. It's probably not going to capsize. Uh, take heart, guys. It's, uh, it's not that far until we reach the edge of the shore. No, the answer is actually not the reasonable thing that's going to, um, to not give them a chance to grow in faith. Jesus says, take heart, I am with you. They would not have seen that. They would not have needed to see that had Jesus not led them to the place where they come to recognize their need for him. Take heart, it is I do not be afraid. He is leading his disciples to the breaking point of realizing that he alone is their source of ultimate, at the end of the day, end of their life, comfort, security, everything, you name it. Take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. What else have you put in that over the past few months? Take heart. Uh, we have a family life plan. Do not be afraid, you know? Take heart, our mortgage rate just went down a half a point. Do not be afraid, you know. Take heart, man, I just got a raise, which means I'll probably have a job for at least another year. Do not be afraid. You know? um, take heart, our kids are in good schools. Do not be afraid. I mean, there's all these things that, and, and again, don't hear what I'm not saying. None of these things are bad things in and of themselves. But when those things become the things by which we find our security, we find our hope. We have faith in those things so often, so much easier more than Jesus. And I'll confess it's way easier for me to follow Jesus, to recognize how all this works out when I'm in the boat, when it's stormy, it's way more difficult for me when the grass is green. And I work hard to have really green grass. I live on a neighborhood with a lot of old people and they take their yards very seriously. <laughs> it's way more difficult for me to, to recognize, to remember, to believe, to have faith once again that, man, if I have nothing at the end of the day and I have Christ, I have more than everything. 
It's so much harder for me to remember that when it's easy. Take heart, it is I, Jesus says, do not be afraid. In verse 51 and 52, it says, and he got into the boat with them. How beautiful. He doesn't, he doesn't wait for them to wise up and shape up and paddle back to shore and climb up the mountain. He got into the boat with them. Jesus is with you in whatever your struggle is right now. And the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded. Now, don't, don't marvel at this. This isn't like, um, I don't think this is actually an encouraging term. It's probably just as well said they were uh, utterly confused. <laughs> Jesus gets in the boat with them, and they are very confused, maybe even looking around at each other as the, as the boat has stopped rocking. Peter looks at Bartholomew and says, what just happened? Verse 52, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Now, this isn't always the best verse you want to end a, a feel-good story on. Any, any story that ends with their hearts were hardened you're tempted to think, well, okay, that's nice. Thanks for the pick-me-up, but I'm going to go home now, you know. No, their hearts were hardened. What it reveals is that Jesus is very patient with his disciples. He's very patient with his disciples. And some of you guys have forgotten that. Some of you think that Jesus, unless you conquer your battle, unless you get that money, unless you get to that next step, unless you kick that habit, whatever it may be, unless you get rid of that thing by tomorrow, man, he's going to love me tomorrow when I figure that out. No, he's very patient. God is way more patient than our minds can even begin to comprehend. We can't even understand the time of how long God's patience will last for us. He's interested. He's invested in the long haul way more than just where you're at today. And for Pete's sake, can, can we just begin to start to celebrate partial obedience? Now, not like, I'm not saying glorify disobedience, but celebrating that Man, I got three days this time. And it can be just so discouraging at the end of that third day. But the next day, you get up with somebody else in Christ, walking alongside them. This is the role of a discipler in a disciple's life, is coming alongside somebody and reminding them of the truth, that God loves them. Hey, you're a Christ follower, man. That means that God never changes the way he sees you, what he declares over you forever. So tomorrow, you'll get up, it'll be a new day. Can we begin to celebrate together the ways that we're seeing God work in our lives? Because if we're gonna wait until like the 100% I got there, check it off my list thing, before we celebrate anything, we will be dead people, okay? So there's some things I wanna just pull up here that just to look at discipleship itself. Number one is this. Discipleship is needing and following Jesus and teaching others to do the same, not needing anything else um, and, and not following, but not really needing. Actually, truly, with everything that I have, dirty fingernails clawing against the surface, I need Jesus. Number two, discipleship uh, is in which a disciple looks like their discipler. So you may be wrestling with this. So what does it look like for me to, to shepherd somebody from my life? I mean, I'm I'm a nurse, I'm a teacher. I mean, I mean what, what am I supposed to do with that? I mean, I can promise you this, like boil it down to this. Paul, in terms of how I interpret that Acts 17 passage, Paul is discipling a guy who can do what he does. And maybe Timothy didn't even see it yet, but Paul did. Who is around you in life? Who, who can learn what it looks like to follow Christ in your sphere of life? 
doing what you do in your job, in your season of life, in your opportunities that you have, a disciple looks like their discipler. That can be a terrifying thought, but it can be a wonderful thought. Number three, a disciple learns to find comfort, security, peace, etc., in Jesus, not you fill in the blank. It's the beauty of discipleship is I, I get to open up every another new time that I begin walking with another guy I get the beautiful opportunity to share my struggles. <laughs> it's so, it stinks, but it's so good because I get to say over and over again, yes, this is how I have failed, but this is how God has never failed me. Pray for me as I walk with you. Number four, Jesus never stops watching his disciples. Some of you feel like that right now, that you have been left out on the boat, all in the middle of the lake, way far from shore, you feel like you're in the ocean and Jesus has nothing to do with you. Thanks a lot, Jesus. I'll be with you always to the end of the age. What good does that do me now? I promise you, just like in this story, Jesus never stops watching, having an eye on his disciples. Number five, Jesus is very patient with his disciples. And we can take hope in that because of number six, Jesus satisfies not just fills up part of the way, not just, um, not just gives them another label or another part of their identity for two hours on a Wednesday night or a Sunday morning. Jesus satisfies all of his disciples' needs. And how do you know that? I personally, in the way my personality has worked out, I have to try something uh, before I believe in what it is. I have to try it and fail at it before I believe it doesn't work, which is not a very efficient way to live life, Okay. That means I fail in a lot of stuff to learn lessons. But Jesus is satisfying of his disciples' needs. As they fail, as they get out to those places, how else can you ever know if Jesus satisfies your needs if you insulate yourselves from all the situations and all of the people that can help you to see and realize and remember that you absolutely need Jesus? In this church, we're committed to be all in for discipleship. Last fall, at a covenant members meeting, we said, this is where we want to go. This is who we want to be. We don't want to just do this thing and have uh, some language. We really, want to, we really want to believe in this and do this and keep growing more and more into this. So five years in, we agreed that we wanted to, to, to be four things. Every covenant member growing as an individual disciple of Jesus Christ. In some way, shape, or form, no covenant member being left in one spot. Everybody growing relative to their own walk with Jesus. Number two, every covenant member in a discipling relationship. Discipling somebody, leading them along or being led along. Discipling a few people or being a part of this journey as you're raised up along with somebody else as they show you what it looks like to follow Christ. Number three, disciples making disciples. To actually have a disciple making movement in the church that doesn't just die after a couple years but is a is something that begins to be very organic and, and continues on. May the church grow because disciples are making disciples. And lastly, influencing church here at Matthias, churches in our community and the culture around us. It's my prayer that people will come to Christ by the way they see discipling relationships interact with each other. That outsiders in your families would be surprised by the ways that this person, that this girl is always at your stuff. And why, why do you trust her with your kids or why, why, do you, why does that guy open up to you so much? Why does he serve so much? Why did he help clean up after this? I mean, opportunities like holidays to, to reveal who Jesus is by having a disciple around and involved in your life as you 
follow Jesus where you're at. May, may Christians be made because they see something that they don't have. And it's not just a church building, it's something that happens one night a week. We have number twos. We have number two lot family leaders at this church, men and women in each lot family who are there, who are discipleship coaches, who don't know everything. None of us know everything in this, but are a resource for you if you're in a lot family to reach out to them. If you're a man or a woman and you're in a lot family, I'm, I'm asking you to reach out to your number two and give, tell them where you're at. Tell them if you're discipling somebody or, or being discipled or if you're neither. I mean, we wanna, we wanna begin to take a deeper pulse of where we're at in this together. But here's the reality, and if you could post this up, Austin. <clears throat> For any of you who are not in lot families, if you are new to this church, you just came here, or you're, you're just interested in checking this out, but you want to hear more about this, if you, if you want to be in a discipling relationship, or you came here and you see the fertile field of opportunity with younger believers, and you want to come alongside and begin to see what it looks like for you to walk alongside somebody and raise them up as together you follow Christ as brothers or sisters, then please email me. Let me know. I would love to sit down and hear your story or at least hear your story there and begin to connect you with other folks in our church. I want to go back to this, Austin, if you can put this back up. Take heart. It is I. Uh, Do not be afraid. This is our hope tonight. Our hope is not that we can grow to a certain point where we graduate beyond our need of Jesus. The hope that we have is that we can be ever more confident knowing that the thing that we have in Christ is actually the same thing that we will only ever realize we need more and more. Your circumstances are not an accident, my friends. Whatever circumstances you're in right now, they have enabled you in some way to recognize in a joyful or a painful way that Jesus, in some ways, is all you have left. And that's more than enough. We can confess together with the Apostle Paul. He says this in 2 Corinthians For we do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despised of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us again. On him we have set our hope, and he will deliver us again. It's being pulled to those places where you recognize that your ability, your power, you're at the end of your rope. You're at the end of yourself. But in that place, in that place of need, of desperation, of brokenness, and of appreciation, that's where we find Jesus together. God, we pray tonight for the name of Jesus to be lifted high. I pray, Father, for those in this room who have come in here enjoying the, uh, the, the following of Jesus and being associated with a crowd, but, not, but pushing away everything that has caused them to need him more. I pray, Father, for an insufficiency apart from Christ to overwhelm us, that we would come to a deeper reality that we have the greatest thing that we could ever seek. He is all-satisfying. He is all-encompassing, all-powerful. Only Jesus can do what he does and who he is. Father, be honored in this worship tonight. Tonight as we worship, I wanna encourage you, we have a time of of response, a response to confess that you actually need the Lord, that you need Jesus, that it's been so long since you've been at that place where you've just come before his throne and said, God, I need you. You may have said it five minutes ago, you may have said it five years ago, 25 years ago, you may have never said it at all. 
But that's where the journey begins again. We have altars on either side of the stage. If you'd like to come up and kneel down on one of the pillows and pray at one of these wooden altars, use the room as your space to worship the Lord.